everybody. Welcome back to another wonderful episode of Wild Connection, the podcast. This week's episode is all about horses. If we had to give a relationship status on horses and humans, it might likely be it's complicated. Depending on the time in human history and the culture, horses could be revered, they could be put to work, and they could be eaten. That's still true to this day. North America used to have horses. I'm not talking about the Mustang. We'll get to them in a minute. I'm talking about actual North American horses. They went extinct in the Pleistocene at the end of the last ice age, along with the mammoths, camels, saber-toothed tigers, American cheetah, and a number of other animals that roamed once upon a time. Perhaps that's why today's Mustangs do so well here. Indeed, the earliest recognized ancestor of all horses, the Dawn Horse, was a North American horse, and it was only about the size of a fox, certainly not large enough for us to ride on. Later, there were other horses that branched off from this parent lineage, becoming bigger and better at running. The group that includes modern horses, zebras, and donkeys first appeared around 5 million years ago and spread across the world. This led to another four more branches in Siberia, Spain, France, and what is now Russia. This was the place that held the key for the origin of our modern day horses. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. Okay, before we get to my guest, I left you with a bit of a cliffhanger on the key to the origin of the modern horse. So I'm going to spill the beans. Using advanced genetic techniques and analysis, scientists have found a signature genetic event about 4,000 years ago that revealed that the ancestors of all modern horses were domesticated in what is now known as Southern Russia. Scientists had been on this trail for a while, and in 2016, a project known as Pegasus was launched to get to the bottom of it. What they have now pieced together is that humans started artificially breeding this horse, and it was genetically unique from all other horses by about 4,000 years ago. From there, it only took 3,000 years for this horse, our modern horses, to replace all of the other lineages across Europe and Asia. Generations later, they were reintroduced to the Americas by the Spaniards, bringing horses back to their ancestral homelands. These descendants are what we today call Mustangs. Although best-selling author Claire Eckard wasn't writing about Mustangs in her new book, Gallant, The Call of the Trail, Two Horses, Two People, One Journey, because it's the first of a trilogy, you never know, Mustangs might appear. This first one already went to number one on the Amazon bestsellers list. And that's not too surprising because it's a wonderful story. I caught up with Claire to talk about this beautiful book that explores the special relationship we humans can have 
with our horses. Hey everybody, I'm really excited. I want to welcome best-selling, award-winning author Claire Eckerd to the show. She's going to talk to us about her new book. Welcome. Hi Jennifer, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I, you know, I'm excited for people to hear a little. We won't give it all away, you know, because we want people to read the book. But Gallant, <laughs> yeah. the the call of the trail, right? Is yeah, that's your new book. First in the trilogy, uh, just released on September 28th. Um, very fortunate that it went straight to a number one bestselling status on Amazon and um, has been getting some wonderful critic uh, critical reviews. So I'm, I'm super thrilled and, and really excited to talk to you about it and to share it with your audience. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And, and I should say is the, t- the subtitle is Two Horses, Two People, One Journey, right? It is. Yeah. And it's a really powerful, uh, a powerful story about how this human animal connection forges and overcomes obstacles. And then essentially there's this hero journey for both the horse and the, the main character. But before we get into all of the juicy details of the book, you know, as a fellow author, I'm always interested in what inspires other authors and all of your books, because this is not your first book. You have um, at least two others that I found, you know, they involve animals. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, does that sort of form the basis for all of your your writing? Well, I think it has so far, and I'm not sure that will always be the case, but I think that there's a certain comfort level about, you know, writing about something that you know, and I've always been an animal lover. I've grown up around animals my whole life. I can't even remember a time where we didn't have uh, animals in our family or through my childhood or since I've been an adult. Um, I've raised two animal lovers whose whose homes are full of animals, so I'm passing that along. But I think because of that connection that I have with with animals, it was a wonderful place for me um, to start my writing career. And the the other books that you're referring to are picture books, children's books. And I think um, the connection that children have with animals is such an incredible way for them to learn about love and loss and caring for something beyond themselves. And so I wanted to uh, portray that. And also, um, I've a number of years working for the Humane Society of Yuma, um, not working as an employee, but working as a volunteer, as a board member, as a fundraiser. And I wanted to really highlight that aspect of uh, my experience in those books. So they're really geared towards educating children about animals and the wonderful things about them and how they should be cared for. And and, and I think, you know, that was just the impetus to begin the writing. So. Okay. And, and I'm just curious, I'm going to ask a follow-up question on that, the, you know, since you're an animal lover and and I really, you know, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, many people say they're animal lovers, but they only love certain kinds of animals. Um, and so, you know, I'm curious, what does it mean to you to be an animal lover? Like how does that manifest in the way that you interact and relate to other species? You know, that's a really good question, because I think when when we use that term animal lover and, and I think what you're referring to is a lot of the time we're talking about um, our domesticated animals, our dogs, our cats, our horses, um, you know, and some of the little mammals that we, we, <laughs> we keep in our houses. Um, but I think it does definitely move beyond that. And to me, it's a whole uh 
beauty with nature, I, I would say. You know, animals for me are what connects me to to the outdoors. And um, it's been interesting for me as a personal journey growing up in England. I grew up in England till I was 20 years old. And when you go for a hike in the English countryside, it's very tame compared to hiking in the American West, uh, which is where I live. And it's been uh, really interesting for me to to tackle what has been, even though I've been here for 35 years now, it, it's still a whole different, it's a whole different animal, so to speak. Um, you know, in England, you go to hike and you're you're looking at uh, obviously a lot of cows and sheep and things in the fields. You're not worried that you're going to get pounced on by a mountain lion. You're not worried about bears. You're not worried about venomous snakes. Um, you know, it's, you're really looking at nature in a whole different way, a very gentle way. And then you come to, to this country and uh, especially doing what I do, which is going out into the wilderness on horseback a lot of the time, you know, suddenly you're faced with a whole different kind of connection with nature and with those animals. And there was definitely a level of fear initially. Um, I'm, I'm obviously getting a lot, lot better about that uh, as time goes on. But um, just I think because it was something so foreign to me. So um, at the same time, it's so fascinating and so incredible and such a gift when you do get to see one of these um, creatures in their you know, natural habitat. And I think that as an endurance rider, you don't ever really escape your connection to nature because that's what a lot of us are out there for. Um, you've got the bond with your horse and you know, you're out there going places that a lot of people don't ever get to see and it's such a gift and it's so amazing. And so I think because of that, I probably got a much broader scope of, of uh, you know, the animals that I connect with. And definitely in future books, they'll, you know, they'll be some incorporation of that. Yeah, well, and we're going to talk about endurance racing because it, it's an integral part of uh, the story. But first, uh, I'm curious. Well, so I share your, you know. Look, I just came back from Iceland this summer and, you know, there's great. It's it's a lot of nature and 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 but you, there's horses, there's sheep, um, there's no venomous snakes. There's there's I think I saw it's not a spider. Daddy long legs are not spiders. Um, they look like spiders and everybody thinks they're spiders, but they're not. And but that's pretty much it. And some birds. So nothing is going to really other than flies that get in your eyes and your mouth. You know, it's pretty harmless. It's pretty innocuous. And it's easy. I, I can see why if that's, you know, I grew up in South Florida. So every body of water is dangerous, period. And mm -hmm. and then I go to Arizona, right, where there's hardly ever a body of water. And when you do find it, it's totally safe. There's no alligators. There's no venomous snakes in the water. I think, I don't think we no have sharks. any, no sharks, no, right? No sharks. Um, and so, but then it was, you know, the, the flip side, you know, for me was I saw a mountain lion once and it, you know, suddenly was like, Oh yeah. Okay. They are uh, really there. They and are, they, you know, cross over into or into our paths as, it, as we're going about doing our thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was just doing its thing, trying to make a living that day. And, and it, it really was, it was fine. I mean, it was a hundred meters away, 
which wasn't that far. And it knew I was there well before I knew it was there. Which So that's that vulnerability that you feel. Whereas maybe when you're on a horse, the horse has another sense of nature too and can communicate to you. Because I remember a horse, I used to ride Tank in Florida. I loved Tank because nothing phased Tank. Nothing. A, a gator would shoot up out of the little canal and he would just be like, cool. And, yeah. you know, non-reactive, right? But, but very right. and very safe. And the one time there was equipment failure and I fell off badly, Tank just stopped and stood there. You know, I swear he was looking down at me like, well, that was pretty stupid, wasn't it? Hope you are. You all right? (laughs) I think it all depends on what what type of horse you're riding. It sounds like Tank was a really nice, solid. It was. horse. Um, A lot of the horses that we ride in endurance tend to be a little more high energy and uh, a little more flighty under certain circumstances. Um, they're extremely fit. So, you know, that, uh, you know, they can run a really long way. And, um, I, I think one of the things I always felt when I was out riding a horse, in a sense, you have some sense of safety because you're on a very large animal who, who's also making noise. And so you're giving whatever is out there, you know, heads up that you're coming, um, and they will, you know, almost always get out of your way. But there's also that sense of, am I going to be, you know, trotting or cantering quite fast along a trail and I'm going to come around a corner and there's going to be a mountain lion standing in the path and we're going to surprise each other. And that horse is going to drop a shoulder and do a 180 and run off and I'm going to be served up as, as <laughs> yeah. on the trail in right. front lion you know so so you always have that a little bit in the back of your mind as, as well sure. you know? I mean you're kind of out there with a buddy but your buddy yeah. might be like bye yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah so right now I'm riding a Mustang and that's that's kind of a whole different experience and there's a different level of trust because I feel like that Mustang who was wild until he was four years old I feel like he has um, a better sense of how to interact with with the wild, with the wilderness, you know, with nature. And he's very, very alert. And I watch his movements and I feel his, his body and his tension and, you know, whether he's relaxed or um, he will. And I've had a couple of times out on the trail where he will let me know that there's something going on that we need to look out for. And I will listen to that. Um, I trust his instincts way before I trust my own. And, and again, I think there's something about a Mustang that gives you that sense of, you know, that's their territory. You're going to let them take the lead and keep you safe. Um, and I really like that about riding Mustangs. And Mustangs are becoming more popular in endurance now, which is fun. We're getting to see a lot more of them and not just your classic, you know, Arabians or half Arabians. So, I, you know, you're talking to a horse novice here and we'll, we'll, so I want to, you know, talk about the types of horses, but what you're saying is, is something that's also at the heart of the book, which is the relationship between a person and her horse and and the horse is gallant and oh gosh her name is oh what is Gracie. her name Gracie yeah okay I, I was that was on the that's what I thought and I <laughs> I didn't write it down and I'm like hashtag oh, no. Gracie and gallant hashtag Gracie and gallant for sure and yeah. So you're talking about the way that you're paying attention and you're in tune with the horse that you're on and, 
And uh, but their relationship goes beyond that. And so I'm wondering, have even though you've loved many animals and you've grown up with animals, have you ever had an especially powerful relationship with one particular animal? You know, I have um, actually it's not a horse, um, but I I mostly, you know, I've had some really, really deep relationships uh, with my dogs and a lot of my dogs that I have had is uh, a rescue animals um, from working with the shelter. And I adopted a dog uh, about four or five, well, maybe five years ago now, who I named Bentley. And he's actually the star of one of my my children's books. And Bentley was this enormous, um, shaggy. Uh, I thought he I thought he must be maybe partly Irish wolfhound. He had that look about him, sort of one of those ancient dogs that you'd find in a castle. You know, he had that look about him, and he was a dog that came into the the local shelter here, the Humane Society of Yuma, and he'd obviously been abused. Um, he was very skinny. His coat was dull. He flinched every time you put your hand near him. And, you know, you just knew that he had had a, a pretty sad life. And we estimated that he was maybe two years old when he came into the shelter. So um, I adopted him and I brought him home and immediately felt like this incredible kinship with this animal. And there was just something about him that was different from the love that I have felt previously for animals. And uh, I, I swear that when I held him and hugged him, my heart rate would come down. You know, there was a sense of peace between us. And I felt like he was feeling that as well. And um, it took quite a while to get him to come out of his shell. He was, if he felt at all threatened or in danger for whatever reason, he would completely shut down. He would go and lay, you know, under a table in a back room and just want to be by himself away from everything. And I would just go in there and sit with him. I put his huge, enormous head on my lap and, and I would just pet him and tell him everything was okay. And we just formed this connection that is nothing like I've ever felt before. So um, trying not to get emotional here. I had him for two years. That was it. He, wow. um, he passed away. Well, I had to have him euthanized because he got sick very, very quickly. And he uh, took him to the vet and thought I was just going to go get some antibiotics or something for, you know, maybe a kidney infection or something that was going on, a bladder infection. And it turned out that he had a very rare blood disease in a form of cancer. And he already had uh, tumors throughout his body. And, you know, we just, there wasn't any way to save him. And, you know, they always say, did you want to take him home and have a last few days with him? I, I couldn't do it. I, I could not do it. I felt that it wouldn't be fair to him because he'd really declined so drastically. And his quality of life was gone. And I thought emotionally it would tear me apart. Yeah. So we had to euthanize him um, that day. And, and it was... It was the hardest thing ever because partly because of the connection with him and partly because I felt like he'd just been given this gift of an amazing life. You know, we would take him up to our ranch in Prescott and he would run around and and he played with our other dogs and he found his joy. Right. He, he this was a dog who had no joy when I met him. He found his joy and he became just the most incredible, incredible animal to have around me. And he still had his fears and he still had things he was carrying over from his past, but, you know, we were really able to work through those. So of course I, you know, ended up 
one of the impetuses for for writing the children's story about him was his his kindness, the fact that he'd gone through so much and yet he remained such an incredibly kind and generous hearted, generous spirited dog. And so I wanted to honor that. And that started the, the series about Bentley. Um, as far as horses, I have definitely had horses that I've had far better connections with than others. And I think um, horses come into your life for different reasons, just like people do. And some are there to teach you something, right? I've had, I've had horses in my life that have literally come in and taught me lessons, um, things that I needed to learn and things that would enhance my connection with future horses, but maybe they weren't supposed to be my horse. And I was always really fortunate to rehome them to people that I knew and have managed to stay in touch with those horses, which has been wonderful. But this horse that I have right now, Pistol, this Mustang, I think he's he's going to be my heart horse. He is something special. He really is. And I'm just excited to see, you know, what adventures we have together. I've only had him for about a year and a half, so we're still pretty new. But we're learning more and more about each other, you know, every every day, every ride. And and I'm just so excited about him for the future. Well, and I love how but thank you for sharing about Bentley and, you know, um, people who used to hear me on the David Feldman show, the biggest biggest. I wasn't the star. It was Senor Antonio Botones, my 18 year old companion who died six months ago. Mm. And and he was he was my heart animal. My yeah. heart companion and um, and he has his own story that's going to be told. But, um, you know, I haven't really talked about it a lot because it's it's, the, it's yeah. yeah. And I've lost other you know, I've had to let go of other animals, uh, but but this one was different. And and so, you know, your 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 horse uh, character, there were a few flash uh, yeah. stands out yeah. as the, uh, the, the, you know, quintessential bad guy horse. Uh, but Gallant is, is, uh, you know, the, the hero and Gracie is the heroine and he's fiction, but, um, and, and, uh, well, Gracie is fiction, but, but is inspired by a real person. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about, who inspired you in, in any of the characters, but especially her? Yeah, this was one, again, just one of the the best things for me about writing this book. I got to I got to connect more with a wonderful 97 year old friend of mine whose name is Julie Sir. And she is known as the Grand Dam of Endurance Riding. She uh, started back in the early 1960s and had mm, four decades of riding in the sport. And so she's extremely prominent. Uh, she's known to be not only a wonderful horsewoman, uh, but also a very gracious person who has shared a lot of her life um, with people in the sport. And she's one, one of the people that I look up to the most. I mean, I really consider her as not only an inspiration for the book, but um, just one of the people who has put into my, my life as such a gift. And so uh, when we were all slowed down a little bit by the recent COVID um, lockdowns, I said to her, you know, how would you feel about me writing a book that's sort of inspired by your, your childhood memories and tying that into a fictional story, you know, where I'll take your character as a young girl and, you know, highlight the sport of endurance riding, but really it'll be the relationship between uh, the character based on you and, and the horse. And I wanted to use a particular horse that Julie had owned and ridden 
And um, that horse was called HCC Gazal. And he was the most amazing horse. Uh, he, he was a horse, you know, Julie still lights up when she talks about him. He's buried right outside her kitchen window on her property. They still have this connection, even though he has been gone for so long. And he, um, he still holds the record for three Tevis uh, or Hagen Cups, which is uh, the best condition award at the 100 mile iconic Tevis Cup ride, which is from Lake Tahoe to Auburn. And it's probably one of the best, uh, best known rides. Even people outside of the endurance world have has heard of it. And, um, you know, she's done that ride 22 times and it's a really tough ride. And I think the last time she attempted it, she was 80 years old. I mean, the, this woman's incredible. So, um, and she's traveled all over the world on, you know, doing horseback adventures and seeing the world by horseback. So it's not just in the endurance world, but just she's an incredible horsewoman overall. So I was really fortunate that she agreed to not only let me use her as inspiration for the character of Gracie, so Ghazal as the inspiration for the character of Gallant. And that made writing this even more special. It wasn't just uh, something from my imagination. It was truly based on the spirit of these two people. Um, you mentioned Flash, who's the, you know, yeah, the quintessential <laughs> bad guy in the in the book, at least in book one. In okay, okay, okay. We got a um, teaser. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, I felt so bad because I actually based Flash I based his his appearance on a horse that I own called uh, RMC Flash Gordon, who is one of our endurance horses. And this horse has probably the most character of any horse in our barn. And we we give him a mohawk. Um, <laughs> so he looks like such a badass because he has <laughs> mohawk mane. He's got a thicker neck, a thicker build. And even though he's not a stallion, he sort of carries himself like a stallion and he has so much attitude. So in my mind, as I'm writing his character, that's that's how I was imagining the character of the almighty Flash in the book. Um, however, I felt bad because I gave him such a tragic beginning and such a tragic backstory. And his journey throughout the book, and it's really the journey of all four characters, but his journey in particular throughout the trilogy is one that changes the most and that I had the most fun writing. And I think it's just because of the extremes that I went to with him. So, um, yeah, the first book, you know, I apologized to his previous owners. <laughs> I said, I said, I know this is this is this amazing horse that, and you know, we love him dearly. And you know that, you know, he's, he's one of our, our best horses. But I made him a really bad guy. So just <laughs> And it insults other horses' okay. ankles. He insults mm. other horses' ankles. You don't have oh the ankles, Gallant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. I felt bad. But I do think he's such an in-depth character in this book. And I think he's an important character because each of these characters, even the two horses that I write about, uh, I think people can so much relate to, you know, and some of us do have really bad beginnings and we have to make a choice throughout our lives if we let that beginning, uh, you know, shape who we are and influence who we are, or if we take steps to change it and if we're going to allow things to change and, and for us to open up and take a different path and go on a different trajectory. And, and so I think we can really relate to both of these horses as characters and I do humanize them somewhat, um, but I also think that animals do have a lot more depth 
and a lot more going on than, than we sometimes give them credit for. So who knows, maybe they are having some of these conversations, but I give them a book, you know? Before I ask you a little bit about writing from the horse's perspective, I just realized that a lot of listeners might not know anything about endurance racing. And we've talked, you know, we've kind of mentioned it a few times. And, right. and so can we, can we just uh, talk for a minute about what is this hundred mile endurance, endurance race, this Tevis cup, when did this start and why yeah. did it even yeah. start? So, so I think some people have a, a view of endurance. They may have seen the movie Hidalgo, which, um, which was out of, gosh, a number of years ago now. Um, not realistic at all. Not what modern day endurance is about, but a fun movie to watch. But the, the modern day endurance, which really started with the Tevis Cup um, back in 1955, I believe, um, is a sport where it's one person with one horse and you travel across a certain distance. Um, the longest rides tend to be 100 miles in one day. You have to finish within 24 hours. Um, the most common rides are 50 mile rides and you have 12 hours to finish those. And this is not only a nationwide sport, but it's actually throughout the world. It's in a number of different countries and each country has an organization or sometimes multiple organizations that, um, control it. And there are definitely, um, a lot of rules in place for the safety of the horse. So it's not like you just jump on a horse that's not conditioned and ride as hard and fast as you can over, you know, a, a mountainous crazy course. This is a sport where you train for months and usually years with a horse and you build a real partnership with it. And, um, you become an elite athlete with that horse and you travel miles across natural countryside, which is amazing. Itself. And oftentimes it's state land, sometimes BLM land, sometimes, you know, national parks. I mean, it's just incredible. And often it's private land that people will open up specifically for, for one of these races. It invites different people from all walks of life. Uh, some of the shorter races, there's a, what we call a fun ride, which is usually 12 to 14 miles and can give you a taste of what it's all about. Um, there's a limited distance ride of 25 miles. And then there's all those distances in between. There's single days, multi-days. So, you know, it's it's a wonderful sport. In this book, I wanted to not get into the technical aspects of it because I didn't want to restrict uh, the readership to people who, who are interested in endurance. Um, that would limit my sales greatly. <laughs> it's not a very well-known sport and there's not a ton of people, you know, uh, involved with it. But um, it's becoming bigger. It's becoming bigger. It's, it's changing over the years. And um, it's, I think for anyone who loves riding horses, it's something that anyone should look into because they are all over. I mean, they're in every state. And it's so easy to, to go to a ride with a horse that you've just conditioned at home and try it out on one of the fun rides or one of the limited distance rides. Um, you don't need specialized equipment. Um, you do if you're getting higher up in the sport, but to go there and enjoy it, you can really take, you know, any horse that's capable of riding, you know, 10, 12, 14 miles or 25 miles and have a wonderful, wonderful day surrounded by um, beautiful countryside and people who are just like you and crazy about horses and you can just meet the most incredible people. So I'm not sure why it hasn't become more popular. I just think it's not very well known. So I'm hoping that this book will inspire people to check it out and 
to look into it because for me, it's been life-changing, uh, just the people I've met, let alone what it has taught me about myself and the challenges that I've had to face going through it, um, which is portrayed a lot through this book as well. Right. Um, so, so just incredible sport. Uh, you can go to aerc.org and that will give you uh, way more information, you know, that I'm, I'm able to give you here, but it's really, it's really amazing. So I hope that in this book, I've inspired people. I've touched on it. I haven't made it uh, too overwhelming. I wanted to make sure that the that gallant was a book that, or a trilogy that is very character driven. So I use the sport of endurance as the backdrop, but the book is really focused on these characters and their journey and their emotions against the backdrop of endurance. So don't let it put you off if you're interested in animals and you love animals, uh, especially horses. I think you're going to like this book, whether you have an interest in endurance or not. Oh, absolutely. And I will put links in the show notes for all of that. So coming back to the characters, you know, was it was it challenging for you to write from the perspective of the horse? You know, surprisingly, (laughs) I, I actually I didn't find writing this book difficult in 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 any way. It was a complete joy to write this book. I think I was so inspired and I would get up at 4.30 in the morning and just just start writing and never got writer's block, um, never had any any real problem with, with writing it other than learning, you know, how to, how to revise it and then edit it and go through that process. But it was the characters to me, to me, I feel like the characters, um, you know, I could see in my mind's eye every character and the journey that they were going through, like it was playing out as a movie. And so I felt like I was just writing down what I saw. And so slipping into the roles of a five-year-old girl or a 13-year-old girl or a 15-year-old teenage boy um, or, you know, the horse characters themselves, I found that surprisingly easy. And and I really, really enjoyed it. And especially because each of those characters were so different. If you look at the two horse characters, Gallant comes from a background where he was loved from the moment he was born. Um, he was pampered, you know, raised as a pet. Um, he would he had everything that he needed in his horse life to be happy. Um, he had this amazing connection with with Gracie from the moment that he was born. And that was one of my favorite scenes to write in the book, by the way, was his birth and his immediate connection to Gracie. Whereas Flash, like we talked about before, came from very, very tragic circumstances. And uh, he grew up in a whole different world than Gallant did. So his outlook on life is completely different. And so these two horses, their lives are kind of pulled together through the, the sport of endurance and through the characters, but they come at it from such different perspectives that it was never, never boring to write to write their story. And just because I've been around horses my whole life uh, and and I'm quite uh, an empath, you know, when it comes to animals and and their emotions and I've seen so much just from being around them. I think it was quite easy to slip into those characters. I hope I did it well um, to where the reader really gets a sense of who they are and what their own personal journeys are, because, you know, that that's what I was aiming for. Oh, I I do think you did it very well. And it's clear um, this is not everybody's able to easily, you know, think about what the from the perspective of the horse. Right. And 
So you talked about what was your favorite scene to write, but I'm wondering what was the most difficult or painful one to write? I don't think that scene has happened yet, but I, I will say that in, in book one, there is a cliffhanger ending. And uh, that was hard to write because I left, I left this character in an, in an awful, terrible place to be. And I took a risk doing that uh, because I, I, I had a choice. There were the original ending of the book stopped a few chapters before that. And it would have been a very happy, joyous ending. But I chose to continue the book a little bit further because I already had an outline and an idea for the next two books in the trilogy. And I needed to move the characters to a certain place to be able to start the next book where I wanted to start it. So I left this character in a truly awful situation that the readers won't be able to resolve until the next book comes out. So I hope it's a cliffhanger that they will bear with me on um, <laughs> and, you know, be excited to see how it how it ends up and how it plays out. But that was that was hard to write. And and I and I also brought in another dynamic um, of that character seeing themselves uh, years prior and and talking about, you know, how that that character as a young character was in relation to where that character was now. That sounds really ambiguous because the reader won't know what I'm talking about, but when they get to that part in the book, they'll see that. And that was such an important scene for me to write. It was such an important scene. And it was something that when it, that character becomes the main character in the second book, let me say that much. Um, and that journey becomes the focal journey in the second book. But, uh, you know, obviously all the, all the other characters will also be moving forward. But I, gosh, I, I loved that scene and I hated that scene, you know, and I was crying when I wrote that scene. It was a tough one to write. Yeah. You know, when we think about um, the relationship between Grace and Gallant, you know, something that struck me with with the favorite scene that you wrote, which is that they the moment he was born and he knew he was loved and, you know, but they chose each other. Right. So it was mutual. Right. So from from the horse's perspective and from her perspective, it was mutual. Do you think that that ever happens? Do you think that that horses choose their people? I definitely think it can happen. I'm not sure that it happens often. I think like we were talking before with the dogs, right? We have a lot of a lot of dogs in our life that we really truly love and we appreciate and we adore. But then that one certain dog comes along and you know that there's something different. There's some kind of soul connection. And I think that it's the same with horses. I think that we can love and appreciate so many horses and especially, um, you know, endurance horses give so much to their riders. They will literally run themselves to death if you ask them to, you know, for their owners. Um, and luckily endurance riders are, are a wonderful group and, and don't allow that to happen. But it, it, the horse just gives so much. Despite that, I think that we are lucky if we find that soul horse in our journey with our horses. I, it was really important to me to write that connection between Gracie and Gallant well, because it carries 
the story all the way through to the end of, of the trilogy. And how I described it was like they were two halves of a broken mirror and they couldn't see themselves clearly unless they were together, which gets me emotional even when I'm saying it. It's so crazy. But the, the idea of that, that, these two souls just really cannot see each other, cannot see themselves clearly unless they're together was the core part that drove those two characters through this book and everything that happened to them that, you know, separated them or um, that took them down a path that they hadn't anticipated. Everything that happened was based on that relationship. So when I say it's character driven, it's it's so emotionally driven, this book. Yeah, um, it is you know, because like I was devastated through uh, like mm-hmm. waiting, waiting. I won't. I, I don't yeah. want to give away too much, but waiting. <laughs> it's hard for, to talk about without giving it away. I know, I know, but like you, <laughs> you know, can give little bits away. It's okay. <laughs> okay, like when they were separated, this was hard yeah. for me, you know. And yeah. I think because uh, maybe for me, you know, what, uh, the emotional. If you've ever had that kind of soul relationship, whether it's with a person or another animal. And you start to imagine, you know, the feeling that it feels to be separated. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just like, come on. Okay. Come on. Do they get back? Do they get back to right. get when, when are they, how, yeah. you know, so yeah. you definitely drew me in as a, a reader emotionally into their relationship. Um, yeah. And even though I called flash a bad guy, I actually felt bad for him. You're right. Yeah, I did. I, I felt his really story. You do. Yeah. I did. And, and, yeah. you know, the challenges that he was facing to rise as an individual and to be recognized, which right. all of us want to be seen, right. right. For who we yeah. are. So I, I'd love to talk a little bit about the relationship between people and horses, because, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, these horses will give uh, on this ride literally to their death. And, you know, a lot of people don't think horse racing is such a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so, um, you know, yeah. uh, so where do you think that this type of relationship with the endurance racing is different from what people might traditionally think about as horse racing, you know, around the track? Um, because you use some of the same types of horses, right? Arabian racehorses. So what's the difference there? Yeah. So I think, and it, you know, it changes in different countries. I mean, there is a, there is some bad news out there about some endurance races in some of the Arab countries and things that happen to the horses there. They look upon the sport as something completely different. And part of that is because there's a lot of money involved. So in the U.S., there is no money involved in this sport. You know, if you uh, win these rides or you, you're in top 10, you know, you might get a bucket or a sweat scraper, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a Range Rover. You know, I mean, it's there just isn't any any monetary gain uh, in the at all, which keeps it at an amateur level and it keeps it about the relationship between the horse and the person. So you're always going to get some bad apples, you know, and you're going to, but I will tell you that peer pressure in this sport does wonders. I mean, you'll get some new people who come into the sport. They may have a very talented horse, but they haven't learned the intricacies of riding that horse on a long distance yet. Um, 
because it is it is something that you learn. And hopefully you learn it from mentors who will take you on your first few rides and you'll learn from them before you, you know, attempt to strategize a ride yourself. But what tends to happen in the U.S. and what I've seen is that you spend so much time with this horse. Sometimes people will breed a horse specifically to be their endurance horse. Sometimes they'll buy a horse at a younger age or they may buy a horse that's already has some experience. Um, but regardless of when that relationship begins, you spend so much time conditioning this horse and then so many hours in the saddle during a ride um, that you cannot form a relationship. And there's so much respect within the endurance community for our horses and incredibly wonderful vets who monitor the horses throughout the rides. So there's always uh, what we call vet checks. And there, the, the longer the ride is, the more vet check points there are. And if the vet deems that that horse, for whatever reason, is not fit to continue the next leg of the race, that horse will be pulled. But I will tell you that nine times out of 10, that rider is going to pull the horse themselves. They are not going to let that horse continue if they feel the horse is having a bad day or has had even a minor injury that might get worse if they continue to ride. So I can honestly say that I have so much respect for endurance riders in this country. And I haven't ridden in other countries, so that's why I'm not mentioning them. But I'm sure it's the same in, in other countries. Uh, you know, just because you you do form such an incredible bond with the animal and you don't want to risk that horse. It takes a long time, even if you look at it just from a, a financial or, or, you know, a very business-like approach of how long it takes to bring that horse along and how much you've put in right. um, to bring it along to be able to do these rides. You know, even if you look at it from that standpoint, you don't want to risk that animal. Um, but like I said, usually the emotional bond between a horse and a rider is so great that um, you are going to take the best care that you can of that horse. Now, things happen. I will tell you, um, you know, just like any athlete, when you look at ultra endurance athletes, human athletes, um, especially I think those doing cross country, you know, not not as much on, on the roads where you've got a nice you know, level surface, but when they're out there doing the ultra endurance trails, um, accidents do happen, you know, and hopefully there's something that, that your horse will recover from in a very short period of time. Um, the horse that I was telling you about flash who we own his career in endurance ended about two years ago when he had a horrible accident at a ride through no fault of my husband who was riding him through no fault of the ride managers or anyone to do with that ride. It was just not his day. You know, he was out doing something that he loved and that he had been conditioned for and trained for and that he'd done very well for a number of years. And he he placed his foot wrong and there was nothing that anyone could have done about that. And he actually fractured. Um, well, he, he essentially broke his leg, uh, his lower leg, his pastern bone. He fractured it. That horse, and this is one of the reasons why, again, I used him in the book, that horse had to walk down a mountain trail for two miles that you would not believe with my husband leading him. I mean, literally a drop off the edge would kill you trail, you know, maybe two feet wide with a lot of boulders and rocks on it. He had to walk down that trail with a broken leg to get back to the ride camp. 
he he'd had that accident at mile 48, <laughs> you know, 50 mile ride. So he got that far in the ride and he had to get two miles back to camp on the most awful trail you can imagine for something like that to have happened. And when I saw the look on my husband's face as he walked in, I knew it was something awful. And when, you know, when the vet checked him, he sent us straight to, you know, secured the leg as best he could, sent us straight to the nearest veterinary clinic. Um, They did all the x-rays, determined that the horse was thankfully salvageable. It wasn't, it was a clean break. We then had to, you know, after a really long day for my husband in the saddle, we then had to drive six hours to a clinic that could perform the type of surgery that we needed for that horse. Um, obviously cost us thousands and thousands of dollars, which was completely irrelevant because at that point we would have done anything for this horse, whatever was in his best interest. And it could have been to put him down. You know, we we had to face that it could have been that the, we needed to put him down, but he was salvageable. And now he's out um, enjoying life, you know, <laughs> paddocks at our 40 acre ranch in Prescott. He can't do endurance. We've chosen not to, to ride him because we don't want to risk any further damage, but he's having high quality of life and he's there and we can love on him and we can share wonderful memories with him. So, you know, things do happen in this sport and people, I think, you know, can look at it it wrong when you're talking about um, the risks of racing horses. I think we have to balance that out with the fact that these horses in endurance love what they do. I was just going to ask you that, like, do they love, do they love running? If they don't, they don't last in the sport for very long because you can tell when a horse isn't interested in moving down the trail. So if you have a horse that you, my first endurance horse, whose name was Panamania, (laughs) any Arabian, I mean, just way too small for me, really, but she had such a fire in her and she just loved to go. And, you know, we started doing endurance with her. She, she knew how to follow the, the, the ribbons that they put on the trail, which show you which direction you're going on. She knew that when there was a horse out ahead of her, she wanted to chase that horse down and she wouldn't relax until she had passed that horse. You know, they know, I mean, these, these endurance horses know their job and they love it. And for instance, with Flash not being able to do endurance now, I feel bad because I know he loved it and that that was something that he loved to do. And none of us want to stop doing something that we love to do. But um, I get such a kick out of just watching these horses going down the trail because you can tell they're in their element. You yeah. know, they're just enjoying it. They're enjoying, enjoying being out there. They're enjoying seeing everything that they see. They're enjoying, uh, you know, being with their owners, with their riders, um, spending time with them. And they're just, you can just tell that they know exactly what their job is. Right. It's awesome to see. So I would challenge anyone, you know, it's, it's totally different from flat racing. We're not galloping, uh, you know, around the place, risking our horses. A surprising amount of time is is spent walking. You know, we get off the horses, we hike some of it, you know, to give them a break. I mean, it's, these horses are very well, very well trained and very well taken care of. So it's, it's a great sport. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I was thinking about pistol, um, your, your Mustang, because one of the things, you know, not everybody's always seen horses as companions. Many times they are now, but they've been work horses. They've been, um, you know, I mean, they've been work animals, sport animals and food animals in some places. 
one of the things that struck me, you know, in, in the story was, of course, they're, they're kept isolated. Um, they're not kept in groups and Mustangs typically run in herds, the wild Mustangs. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and when I was in Iceland, you know, Iceland, uh, you know, they keep their horses in groups um, because they they think it's better for the horses, the, the welfare is for the horses. What's sort of the I guess the reasoning for keeping um, you know, and, and cause that was in the story too. I flashed, it was like, I couldn't be with any other horses. Um, what is the, what is mm-hmm. the kind of rationale, uh, for that in this, in this, uh, yeah. area? Well, it's not so much that they're isolated. They're, they're in, uh, pens, you know, right next to each other. So they can obviously interact with other horses. A simple reason for flash being a little more separated is because he was a stallion, and he would be going around impregnating <laughs> all of the mares <laughs> that people had at the facility he was kept at. So he, he you know, he had to be kept separate for that reason. Um, but you will always find, I mean, anytime we have 12 horses, you know, we have them in groups. Uh, the ones that get along are in, are in groups and they sort out their own dynamics and their own herd dynamics. Even the domesticated animals, it's interesting to watch them go back to the same dynamics that you, you tend to see with the Mustangs when you study the Mustangs. So they're not really kept separately. I would actually tell anybody if they have a horse that they need to have a companion, at least one companion with that horse. I do think because they are such social herd animals, um, it's not fair to keep one horse by itself under any circumstances. Um, Now that horse can be well loved, well taken care of physically, but I just think mentally it is not um, good for them to be by themselves. Right. So I think in the book, I'm trying to look back and think, you know, when you're saying isolated, are you just talking about like when they're in the pens of the boarding stable or the training stable and they're just kept? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I wonder like how much on these on the rides, right? Is it also about the horses having a relationship with each other? You know, when you with these endurance rides, is there any interaction among the horses? Because I mean, I. Uh there is some, but it's it's a, a different reaction because they are out there doing a job. So you'll get some horses that can actually be, uh, you know, not so nice to the other horses on the trail. They don't want to be passed. If you get a horse that tends to kick, you have to put a red ribbon in its tail to warn people coming up behind it that it's uh, for whatever reason, it may not be very friendly if you're trying to go around and to give the rider notice that you want to pass so that that person can pull their horse off the trail at a safe place for you to go around them. Um, It's a different kind of dynamic. These horses, like I said, do realize that they're out there to do a job. They're not out there to socialize. Um, Having said that, when you're not riding towards the front of the pack and a lot of a lot of people in endurance are not going to race by any means, they are literally just going to enjoy the ride, um, hang out with friends, you know, maybe ride with other horses that they've been training with. And in that instance, those horses definitely know each other and enjoy sticking together and, you know, go down the trail well together and pace together and help each other out. You know, they, they can take turns being in the lead um, because in the lead it's a little uh, harder, just like a group of bicycles, you know, where you'll see on bike riders, road, road bike racers, you'll see them drafting off the horse in front. You can definitely use strategies like that if you're riding um, as a group and endurance. Um, so it's not so much a social interaction, though, um, because a lot of the time you're riding alone and you're riding your own race. 
And there's a benefit to that as well, because you don't want your horse to be uh, drawn into going faster than maybe it should be going because it's going with a group of horses. Um, so there's all kinds of different dynamics going on at an endurance ride, which is another reason that it's fun, you know, to write about it. And I'm, I'm surprised there, there've been quite a few nonfiction books about endurance, sort of more technical how to, or this was my experience, you know, at, at a ride or whatever. Um, there hasn't been, I, I can only think of one other book that's fictional and I'm sure there might be others out there, but it really hasn't been something that's been written about in a, in a fictional storytelling yeah. um, style. And I think especially for younger readers who we would consider junior riders uh it's a great way to sort of entice them into the sport and to look into it is to draw them in with this story you know yeah. characters well and so you know you mentioned that um the part of the specialness of this relationship was between grace and gallant was the that they couldn't see themselves fully without the other and I'm wondering, you know, do you feel like there, I picked up on some sort of life lessons that can be kind of drawn out both for, you know, uh, and so are there some lessons that you think stand out for you that people can learn from this book, um, from these characters, not only for themselves, but even maybe how to have a different kind of relationship with their horse? Yeah, I think there's more life lessons that I could even list. You know, in Can you this. pick one? <laughs> I know. I'm going to pick a couple for you. So okay. There, there's the life lesson of love and friendship and how important that is to us as human beings, you know, to, to cultivate that, um, whether it's between each other as, as humans or our relationship with animals. And both can have such a valuable um a valuable part of, of our development and our emotional um, journey in life. And so, so that is definitely highlighted in the book. Uh, loyalty is highlighted in the book. Um, Gracie is a really wonderful character, but she is three-dimensional. Um, but, she, you know, she, she's very kind. She's very aware of how she impacts other people. She tends to, in this first book, be even a little bit submissive because of that, because she's so concerned about others and their their feelings. Um, so she holds back a little bit. And as she gets older, we do see her grow and become more confident in herself and better able to express herself. Um, and I think that's a life lesson in itself. Uh, you know, I had one person comment to me that they felt Gracie's character was a little weak in this book. Um, let me say that that was just one out of a lot of people, but I understood what she was saying. Her yeah. point was she didn't like to see a submissive female character in this way. So my answer to her was, it's okay that you feel that way because this is a trilogy and these characters go through such incredible journeys themselves, you know, throughout these three books, wait till you've read the, the last book and tell me then if you think Gracie is a weak character, because I think you'll change your mind, you know? Um, but you have to, you know, you, you're not going to start uh, all of us change. I mean, if I'm sure if you look at yourself at five years old at 13, at 25, you know, you're, you're very different depending what you've been through in your life um, and those stages. 
So I, I think one of the important things that I wanted to show, and again, we don't see it so much in the first book, but I'm, I'm thick in the middle of the second one right now. And we see this, um, especially towards the end of the second book, is that um, there's a lot of angst going through, especially as teenagers, right? I mean, you're, you're dealing with a lot, a lot of life changes, a lot of self-growth, a lot of self-doubt. You can go through some dark moments in your life. And one of the things that I really was passionate about portraying in this with my characters is that they could go through these very dark moments and they could come out the other side, you know, that we don't have to drown in these dark moments and think this is it. And, and I think, you know, and I, I'm sort of hinting here towards the amount of suicides that there are with younger people. That is so tragic because when you have some perspective on life, you realize that those dark moments are hopefully very short periods and can be incredible learning opportunities for us. And that if we can just hang on through those and come out the other side, we can be such better people for it and, and much more compassionate people, but also found, find a lot more inner strength. So I wanted my characters to go through the, those periods of darkness so that they could also really experience these incredible moments of joy. And, and that does take the reader on, you know, a bit of a roller coaster. But I think it's important for younger people to read that, especially, and to see that, see these characters going through it and maybe relate it to themselves. Well, yeah. And I actually think it can be very useful for some adult readers, too, because... Yeah. If you let's say that you've gone through your life and you've not really had a lot of challenges and then you have a challenge, you may not have built up the resiliency muscles, <laughs> you know, um, that it takes to to get through those challenges. And the funny thing about the human brain, uh, and I can't speak of the brain for other animals, um, although I know that they can get stuck in a loop of despair and despondency and trauma as well. You know, the brain is wired to pay attention to negative things and it's a protective mechanism. And so, but unfortunately that means you create a narrative of more future negative things um, and that becomes really hard. So I love that there are these places where it almost seems hopeless and then it's not hopeless and then there's hope again. And, and so I agree that I think that's really important because there's a lot of things happening in the world right now. And a lot of young people feel really overwhelmed and hopeless about even the future, even if in the moment they're not experiencing personally a really negative experience, but there's just a lot of negativity out in the world. Uh, you know, I, I want to be mindful of your time, but I did want to point out one of the things that I love that you're doing is you are um, donating a portion of the proceeds to the Western Trails Museum. Correct. Yeah. And what, what made you choose that to do that? Well, it was it was a little bit of a joint decision and a little bit of, of timing. Um, I wanted to give back something to the world of endurance from this series. Um, because it has given me so much. And so at the time that I was uh, sort of concluding writing this first book, I was actually visiting, um, we were at a Mustang sanctuary at an event and Julie Sir, the inspiration for Gracie was there with me. And we were talking about how the Western States Trail Museum uh, idea seemed to be gaining traction and actually coming about. This is a project that had been talked about for a number of years and hadn't happened. And finally, uh, a wonderful 
wonderful endurance writer, longtime endurance writer called Hal Hall, had to sort of take the reins of the project um, and head up the board and has really been making things happen and moving it forward. So um, it seemed like really good timing that this was a relatively new project that would touch a lot of people. It's going to be right in downtown Auburn, which is um, a town in California in the gold country, which is uh, where the the end, the finish line of the Tevis Cup 100 mile race uh, ends. And so it's in the perfect place. Um, they call Auburn the endurance capital of the world. So it couldn't couldn't be in a, in a better place for it. It's right in the historical downtown uh, in a building that's been used by the Chamber of Commerce. And they are just getting ready to, uh, they've been negotiating with the city for a number of, of months. They're, they're getting ready now to sign the leases and get it, and get it open. So I was hoping that, um, I wanted to highlight that that project was happening and also to, you know, just hopefully help them with a little bit of the, the funding that it takes to launch a project like that. Um, and so I'm super excited that we could, you know, tie these two things together and, uh, they've been very supportive of the book and, um, you know, it's, it's just a great project. And I, I just hope that, uh, that it will be up and open for people to go and explore very soon. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, look, I, I want everybody to go out and get Gallant, The Call of the Trail, two horses, two people, one journey. And I know I can't wait for the second book. So any clues on when that's coming? So I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to time it for a release. This one released September um, of this year. I am, I'm going to make sure that the next one is out by September of next year. I know that's kind of a bit of a gap having a one year, but you know, I could hook you up and maybe <gasps> send you something prior to publication so you could get a sneak peek. Oh, okay. And I promise I won't, I won't <laughs> share. And um, Claire Eckert, again, it's been so wonderful talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show. And it's a, it's a beautiful book. Um, and I, I hope uh, that it continues to stay on the bestseller list because it really deserves that. Thank you so much, Jennifer. So much fun talking to you. Thank you. Seriously, everyone go out and get a copy of Gallant, The Call of the Trail. It's a great book for tweens and adults. You know, I started this episode off with Mustangs, and so I want to close with Mustangs. I will avoid the politics of Mustangs and simply say that they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect all the way around, like any other individual, be it human or other animal. We have kind of an ugly history in this country of our treatment of these North American wild horses that have been running like their ancestors, the original Dawn Horse. Okay, maybe the Dawn Horse didn't run like them, but my point is that they've been here for over 500 years. You know, the honeybee has only been here for 400 years, and we have all these Save the Honeybee campaigns, which ignore the damage that honeybees do to their native pollinators. This just highlights our selective storytelling when it suits our economic interests. So in honor of Mustangs, I want to highlight one organization that is trying to do something to help Mustangs in the United States the Mustangs of America Foundation. It's a not-for-profit volunteer organization that's dedicated to promoting Mustangs and borough adoptions, training them, and facilitating public education and prevention of the cruelty to animals. The Mustangs of America Foundation focuses on Mustang adoptions through the inmate training programs in Sacramento, California, Carson City, Nevada, and Florence, Arizona. 
You can find out more at www.mustangsofamericafoundation.org. All right, that's it for this episode. And listen, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, leave a review so we can get the word out. There are even more amazing guests coming on in the next few months, including a series dedicated to women in science, thanks to the American Geophysical Union Sharing Science Grant. So stay tuned. In a few weeks, I'll be bringing you a report from the COP26, where I am currently part of this historic effort to try and save ourselves and all of the other species we share this glorious planet with. Till next week, 